started. Uh, this is week 41 of this apocalypse known as 2020. Um, but week two of our current series titled Surviving the Apocalypse. And we talked last week about um, how our culture just kind of has apocalypse on the brain. In the past 20 years, post-apocalyptic books and shows and, and movies and video games have absolutely exploded. It's Everyone is fascinated with the idea of what things would look like if everything fell apart, and especially what it, you know, whatever dystopian society might spring up after the collapse. But it's something our, our, our world has been fascinated with for the last 20 years. Um, some of the biggest, most money-making things have been um, the idea of this apocalypse about everything falling apart. And we talked about last week how the church has been focused on that for much longer. Um, the church has been focused on what we call the eschatos, the end things, the last things. The study of eschatology is the study of the last days, the final things. And uh, uh, so eschatos is this word that means the last or the end. Um, and the church has been kind of consumed with this idea of the eschatos for, for 2,000 years now, the end times. Um, and, uh, and there's never been a generation of Christian that didn't believe they were living in the eschatos. Uh, I personally kind of gave up on studying end time stuff uh, years ago. I, the Bible college I went to, you know, felt like they had it down. Like they knew ex- exactly how it was going to work, how it was going to time out. You know, they taught us everything, you know, was going to start on a Tuesday. And then, it, you know, we, no, not that specific, but close to that specific. And so I came out feeling like I know exactly there's like three markers we're waiting for, man. And as soon as those get here, ball is rolling and we're going to. And I used to drive to work, and I would listen to, you know, Christian radio on the way to work. And I was listening to David Jeremiah. He was on every morning when I was driving. And he did a study of Revelation, and it was completely different than what I'd be, I had been taught. But I'll be darned if he didn't make it all work and make it all fit and put a bow on it and make it clean and easy. And, and so that kind of confused me. I figured, well, I'll go back and study it later. And then another guy, I can't remember who, did another study on, on Revelation and Daniel nine and Matthew twenty four and twenty five and, and totally different than I'd learned it, totally different than David Jeremiah taught it. And I'll be darned if he didn't put a bow on it and make it all clean and make it all work. And then I heard Jack Hayford do it. And I mean he made it weird. Like he took this he took this timing verse that's, that everybody says happens in the in the in the book of or halfway through the tribulation where the, the abomination of desolation happens and everybody puts that in the tribulation and he's like, let's just say what if what if the abomination of desolation was the cross? Like, and he goes to Jesus saying, sitting on the hill going, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would I gather you like a hen does her chicks, but you would not. Therefore, I leave unto you your house desolate. He was like, so what if this abomination of desolation is actually the cross? How's that work? And I'll be darned if he didn't put a bow on it and tie it up and make it all fit. And I was like, I'm done. I don't, however, however it works out, I'm excited to be there. <laughs> and other than that, I, so I don't really study the eschatos much anymore because... You can make it say whatever you want. You can make it fit anything. But uh, the, the fun thing about this year, especially in 2020, is that in the midst of, uh, of all this fascination with the apocalypse, um, things do actually fall apart. There are times when things really do collapse. We talked last week about David living through uh, a personal apocalypse. He had this incredibly charmed life where... You know, everything he did was blessed. I mean, he was anointed at a young age to be the next king. He's this famous giant slayer. He gets to be the lead guitar player for the for the kingdom, playing for 
for the king himself, and he turns out to be this famously good warrior. Everybody's singing songs about him. Everything he touched, you know, turned to gold. Everything went perfectly for him until one day the king throws a spear at him to kill him. And with one thrown stick, David goes from being the kid who can't do anything wrong to a homeless refugee. And he spends 14 years homeless running for, for his life. And, and to where it feels like he just can't seem to do anything right. And so we all kind of resonate with this story because all of us have lived a version of it where things are going along fine. Everything seems great. And with virtually no notice, the spear flies and, uh, and our lives just fall apart. And sometimes the worst part of, of a personal apocalypse is the way the world just kind of keeps going. You know, anybody who's, who's lived through one of those moments when your life just falls apart around you, it's incredibly surreal how people still want to talk about work and how bills have to get paid and, and the news keeps telling the news and, and you're like, how has time not frozen right now? It's one of the weirdest parts is how everything keeps moving even when your life falls apart around you. Um, and every single one of us go through that from time to time. I talked last week about how I got this apocalyptic call and my two best friends and my spiritual dad all died in a car wreck together. And my, my life was never the same out of that. And I never could have predicted, like David sitting there seeing this spirit come at him, I never could have predicted that moment. Um, and, and yet it happened. And, uh, and I think we all face something similar. In fact, if you think that, you know, we've kind of planted this church, um, you know, with a master plan and a keen missional vision, you'd be dead wrong. Uh, this church is growing out of ashes. Most of us came in here limping, um, beat up, wounded, barely hanging on. Some of us are frustrated and offended. And, and so we're mostly just a bunch of broken people um, and trying to figure out, you know, how to do churches in the least destructive way possible um, and care for each other. So welcome to Open Table. That's who we are. Um, anyway, last week we looked at the art that David made in the midst of his kind of personal apocalypse. And, and we found his go bag. We talked about that go bag that uh, my son, you know, introduced me to. Uh, that thing that you have packed and ready to go. So when the, the apocalypse hits the fan, man, you can grab this one bag and you know you've got everything in it to survive. And we found David's go bag in his art, and it was mostly full of God's presence and, and, how, uh, and how it turned out to be enough uh, for him. And, uh, and spoiler alert, David survives his apocalypse and eventually becomes king, and the faith that he gained in this season of his life carried him through. In fact, there's another time when David has to go on the run later. He's running from his, from his own son, and when you compare the, the, the psalms that he wrote in his first kind of, what we call his first exile, when he was running from Saul, and they were full of this frustration, like, what did I do wrong, God? What, this is wrong that I'm doing this, you know, because he, he hadn't done anything bad to Saul, and Saul was trying to kill him. And then when you, get, when you read the psalms he wrote in his second exile, when he's running from his son, they sound like, God, you've cared for me before. I know you're going to care for me again. Like, you, there's this peace in him, like, like, God, you've pulled me, you pulled me out of the miry clay and you put my feet on a rock and I know you're going to be there for me. And so this faith that he got in the middle of this collapse um, carried him for the rest of his life. And even though last year's epoch- or last week the apocalypse we talked about wasn't fair, 
Um, when Saul turned on David, it wasn't because David had misused him at all. David had, never, had done nothing except what was in Saul's best interest. But, but, uh, but Saul turned on him. And even though that wasn't fair, uh, this week's apocalypse can tend to be and seem even more unfair. Uh, in fact, it really rubs against kind of our American Western sensitivities. So please prepare to be uncomfortable. Everybody kind of buckle in because these, these aren't fun. Our apocalyptic text um, comes from Second Chronicles chapter 36 if you like to follow in your own Bible. Otherwise, it'll be on the screens. We're going to start in verse 17. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them to, into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, and the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king, the king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God, and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the kings and his officials. Then the army burned the temple of God, tore down its walls, or the, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken as exiles into Babylon, and they became servants to the king and his sons, until the king of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord that the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled, just as the prophet had said. So two weeks ago we highlighted the kind of this huge moment in, in uh, Jewish history where David brings the ark into Jerusalem. And, uh, and we talked about how this is this kind of weird pivotal moment in Jewish history that we don't talk about a lot. It was, uh, it was the moment that Jerusalem kind of became Jerusalem. We're all so used to Jerusalem being this, this city that's kind of at the center of the news and of everything in the world. And two weeks ago, we talked about the moment it became that. Before that moment, it was Jabus. It was a Canaanite city. Nobody had ever heard of it. And, and then G, uh, uh, Jerusalem becomes Jerusalem when David brings the ark in. And, uh, and ever since then, it's been this huge cosmic city um, that's always at the center of everything. Well, today's passage is another one of these key moments in the Jewish story. And it's often overlooked. And, uh, and I, uh, we don't usually treat with it in church. I haven't heard a lot of sermons preached on this passage. But again, this is a pivotal moment um, in the Jewish story. This is, a, this is one of the most central moments. Today's passage marks the separation of what we call First Temple Judaism and Second Temple Judaism. Um, in First Temple Judaism, there's a, there's a really intense focus on, on the, the, the temple and the land and the Torah. So you've got uh, temple, Torah, and land is, is what it means to be a Jew. After this point is the birth of the synagogue. Before that, there was no such thing as a synagogue, no such thing as a rabbi, no such thing as a Pharisee and a Sadducee. And all these things we read about when Jesus comes on the scene were all birthed in this season because you took a Jewish people and you took them out of their land and they had to figure out how to be Jewish with no temple and no land. All they have is Torah. And so you see this this shift in the way that Israel is Israel and it's never been the same. So this is the death of Old Testament Judaism, the Judaism that Moses birthed, and the beginning of this kind of new Judaism that Jesus uh, kind of walks into. And so it's a huge moment. Um, when, when Israel comes back uh, on the map, they're different. They're never the same again, and they do things differently. They have different players, um, and everything is, is new. 
And so, to understand this story, to understand how this happened, how this kind of key moment happens, we have to back up a little bit, maybe zoom out a little bit, and try to look at kind of the broader picture of the Jewish story. So we're going to start in Exodus 3. This is kind of the beginning of the Jewish narrative. It says, Then the Lord told him, I have, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is, the, it is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Cellulites, all the otherites, Jebusites. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me. I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Israel. So this is the beginning of the Jewish story as a nation. This is the Exodus. God is calling Moses to free his people. And this move does not happen in a moral and kind of political void. God tells Moses that this huge geopolitical thing that is about to happen is going to leave Egypt with its population greatly limited, its livestock and crops destroyed, its people in severe mourning, its complete labor force moved out, and its military defense greatly diminished is precipitated by something. This isn't just God doing something. This is something precipitates this huge collapse of a kingdom. This is not the normal cyclical ebb and flow of societal life. God is stepping in to change the course of a nation because of the behavior of that nation. He says, Then the Lord took him, or told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries for distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them. First of all, how seriously cool is God? This sounds like the line, a line from Avengers. Like, I have come down to rescue them. Um, anyway, that's how my brain works. Seriously, the exodus um, that is about to take place, all the pain, all the death, all the destruction, is facilitated by Egypt's injustice, the way they're treating the Israelites. And this is a point um, that really births the nation of Israel. Up to this point, this is really just a single family. This is Abraham's grandson and his kids and their wives that they've kind of brought into the mix um, that's who went into Egypt, a family, really. And now um, there are probably about 2 million people. And, uh, <clears throat> and Moses is leading them out. But not just that, he's going he's to free them from slavery, but he's also going to give them their religious observances, which they haven't had up till now, a social contract for the first time, a legal system, a health department, really the whole thing. The Torah is like, a, like a, uh, the Constitution. It's what makes Israel Israel. It's what makes them a people, all the, all the stuff it takes to be a nation is in this, uh, except this nation is not supposed to be normal. It's not supposed to be like every other nation. From its inception, Israel's supposed to be different. They're supposed to stand out and function completely uniquely. Um, in fact, the first real gathering that they have after they've been freed from Egypt is at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And God gives Moses this message. Then Moses climbed to the mountain uh, and appeared before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the people of the earth. 
for all the earth belongs to me. They're all my people, really. But you're going to be my special people. And you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is the message you must give the people of Israel. So from day one, Israel is supposed to be different. They're supposed to stand out. They're supposed to do things completely differently than everybody else. They're supposed to function uniquely. Moses outlined life in a way that if they'd followed it, they would have been nothing like the other nations. And we have a tendency when we read the Old Testament to get hung up on kind of the, the moral and personal um, sides of the Torah. So don't kill, don't lie, don't you know, commit adultery, don't steal, who you have sex with matters, things like that. But what's ironic is almost every ancient code, almost every ancient religious system agreed on these things. If you look at Hammurabi's code, you know, they all agreed, you know, you can't steal, you can't lie, you can't, you know, commit adultery. Like, all of the ancient religious systems agreed on this. What made the Torah truly unique was that it was built on a system of justice. Every other ancient code had kind of different, um, different behaviors and rules for the ruling class and for the working class. It, it separated them. Like if you're in the working class, you have to do this and this and this and treat the ruling class like this. And they had, uh, they, they was built on a separation, which was probably because it was the ruling class writing the rules. <laughs> and so they kind of, you know, buffered the system in their favor. But the Torah is full of commands for justice, like to keep the weights and measures in the marketplace equal so that nobody can be cheated from, from other people. It had stuff where the legal system was to stay insulated from bribery um, and the Jews were not allowed to bend justice for the rich or for the poor. You, it, it, it outlined ways of doing things so that justice had to stay justice for everybody. There were systems in place to encourage work while still preventing generational poverty. There was effort-based entitlement programs that could provide for the destitute without giving them a, a handout that would rob their dignity. There was protections for every class of people. And in that day, it was an incredibly miraculous, forward-looking piece of legislature. There was nothing on earth like it that cared for every member of the society in a way the Torah did. And this made Torah, and it made Israel really completely different. There was no other nation, no other kind of religious code on the planet like it. In fact, just to look a little bit, this is the way Torah talked about their king. If they didn't have a king when this was written, but Moses kind of predicted they might want one. And this is the stuff it said the Jewish king should be like. This is in Deuteronomy 17, if you want to follow along, in verse 14. It says, you're about to enter the land the Lord God is giving you. Uh, when you take it over and settle here, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select a king from the people from uh, the man that the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He must not be a foreigner. The king must not build large stables for horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. The Lord has told us you must never return to Egypt. Horses back then, nobody rode them for transportation. They were uh, instruments of war. They used them for chariots and things like that. They didn't ride like cowboys. They hooked them to chariots. And So this is war. They're basically saying the king can't, can't build up a big army for himself. Um, anyway, the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. When he sits on his throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instructions, the Torah, on scrolls in the presence of the Levite priest. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms and instructions of this decree. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud 
and acting like he's above his fellow citizens. It will uh, also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way, and it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. So God says if, you're, if, you, if you do want to pick a king, here's what he should be like. He should not have a big army. He should not have a, a harem with many wives. He should not have you know, riches in gold, and he needs to be a Bible guy. Like, never has this described the kind of kings that nations typically choose. Like, this is not, and back then, this is the opposite of what a king was. Usually the guy who became king in this kind of culture was the strongest, best fighter who could basically make everybody submit to him. And so from day one, even down to what their leadership should look like, Israel was different. They were supposed to do things completely different and look completely uh, apart from the other nations. Um, and so Israel moves into the promised land, and they have these judges that rule over them for a while. And, and just like Moses predicted, they decide they want, a, they want a king, kind of like he asked for. And the motivation for this desire was as transparent as it was missing the point of Israel. Um, the people cried out to Samuel like this, Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. So Israel... Uh, kind of reveals they don't want to be different. They want to be just like every other kingdom. They don't want to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They want to be ordinary. They want to be like everybody else. And, and that's what they do. So they choose a king, and just like uh, Moses said he shouldn't do, he, he gathers wives, he gathers riches, he gathers chariots and, and armies, and, and he builds up kind of a more traditional Kingship, And then after him, David takes over. We talked about that last week. And after David, his son Solomon takes over. And the, and the, the rule of, of the kind of the unified kingdom, the three kings, is about 120 years. So from like 1900 to now, from the turn of the 20th century to now, is about how long the kings rule. So you can imagine America at 1900, how much a kingdom can change in 120 years. Like if you look at where we are now compared to 1900 before the Industrial Revolution, and the tech revolution and everything else. I mean, a lot can happen in 120 years. And that's kind of exactly what happens. Um, in those 120 years, the nation went from being different, being the standout nation, to this. It says, this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's Temple, the Royal Palace, the supporting terraces, the walls of Jerusalem, the city of Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Gezer, killing the Canaanite population and burning it down. He gave the city to his daughter as a wedding gift. She's one of Solomon's wives. She married, oh, she married Solomon, so Solomon rebuilt the city of Gezer. He also built up the towns of Lower, Beth Horon, Bethal, Tamar, and the wilderness within the land. He built towns and supply centers and constructed towns where the chariots and horses could be stationed. Remember, he's not supposed to have those. He built everything that he desired in Jerusalem and Lebanon and throughout the entire realm. And there were still some people living in the land who were not Israelites, including the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These were descendants of the nations the people of Israel had not completely destroyed. So Solomon conscripted them as slaves. And they, were, and they serve as forced labor to this day. And I know I'm bouncing through a lot of history here. But please remember where Israel's story started. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries for distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering 
So I am coming down to rescue them. This is where Israel started. They were an oppressed slave class who were suffering, and they cried out to God, and God rescued them. And he called them to be different than the other nations. He called them to be different than Egypt, where they came from. And by the end of Solomon's reign, three kings, by the end of his reign, the court recorder records, so Solomon conscripted them as slaves, and they serve as forced labor to this day. So the oppressed have become the oppressors. Those who cried out to God are now causing other people to cry out. Those who had been slaves are enslaving others. So what happens when a nation of people saved from slavery begin to use their freedom to enslave others? Well, immediately after Solomon's death, the nation has a civil war and it splits into two nations that never really do come back together. When we read in the New Testament, everybody's like frustrated with the Samaritans. You know, nobody liked the Samaritans. The Samaritans were part of the split. So when we talk about Israel in the New Testament, we're really only talking about the bottom half of the country. The top half never really did come back. They split into Samaritans and, and Israelites. So Samaritans came from this civil war. And the rest of the nation, so they split right after Solomon, right after we, we get this report of Solomon is using slaves, this nation that was supposed to be different and treat people different and have justice for everybody is now using slaves and the nation crumbles. Not long later, we find ourselves in kind of this apocalyptic text we read this morning. Babylon is killing men and women alike. They plunder the temple. They take everything of value and drag everyone into captivity. Israel finds themselves playing the role of Egypt, the plundered nation. A nation punished by God for oppression and abuse. And this apocalypse doesn't come out of nowhere. I honestly think the, the spear hit the wall when Solomon started using slaves. I think that was the moment that Israel started absolutely going the wrong direction. You may even be able to go all the way back to the time Israel was saying, we want to be just like everybody else. But this huge chunk of Scripture at the end of our Old Testament is, is the prophets. And it's all of these books of, of these men who saw what was happening. And they were crying out to the nation going, hey, we cannot do this. This is not the way Israel is supposed to be. This is not what we're about. I, I pulled just a sampling. This is from Amos. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rents. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you'll never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellions. You oppress the people and you take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Micah, speaking of the slavery and injustice in Israel, said, Listen to me, you leaders of Israel. You hate justice and you twist all that is right. You're building Jerusalem on the foundation of murder and corruption. Isaiah said it this way, The Lord comes forward to pronounce judgment on the elders and rulers of his people. You have ruined Israel, my vineyard. Your houses are filled with things stolen from the poor. You dare to crush my people, grinding their faces, the faces of the poor into the dust, demands the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies. Ezekiel is trying to explain what a, what a godly man looks like 
He says he's, merciful, he's a merciful creditor, not keeping items given as security to the poor debtors. He does not rob the poor, by, uh, but instead gives food to the hungry and provides clothes to the needy. He grants loans without interest, stays away from injustice. He's honest and fair when judging others and faithfully obeys my decrees and regulations. Anyone who does these things is just and will surely live, says the Sovereign Lord. While we're on Ezekiel, he has this amazing verse about Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of us, you know, feel like we understand Sodom and Gomorrah. There's that story in, in, in Genesis where Lot is trapped in Sodom and Gomorrah and God's going to destroy it. And, and, he, and the men say some horrible things. We even have a word that we've made based on how rotten Sodom and Gomorrah were. And we're, we're comfortable with why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And Ezekiel, while he's judging Israel, he says, As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, Sodom and her daughters were never as wicked as you and your daughters. Like, that had to sting. That's like somebody going, you're worse than a Nazi. You know, like, you're like, ooh, that's low. Like, this Sodom is like, it's synonymous with sin. And Ezekiel comes in and says, you're worse than Sodom, which is harsh. But then he adds this, Sodom sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. She was proud and committed detestable sins, so I wiped her out, as you have seen. She was, her sins were pride and gluttony and laziness while the poor suffered outside her doors. Ouch. And I could go on and on. The prophets are full of these passages where God is saying, you were supposed to be just, and you're not. Remember, this, this morning's passage started with these painful words. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Lord brought Babylon in. God is the author of this apocalypse. And it doesn't come without warning. The entire tail end of the Old Testament is nothing but warnings. But Israel proved to be just as wicked as every other nation. And that was never God's plan for them. But this begs the question that nobody ever wants to ask. What does that mean for America? Because America has some claims to godliness. We've got good roots. Maybe not the shining story that we were all given in school with Manifest Destiny and where every one of the founding fathers was practically a pastor. You know, I don't think it was probably quite that shiny, but... But even if it was, even if every one of the founding fathers felt the presence of God bearing on them as they were birthing a nation, we have to ask the question, does that protect us from judgment? If Israel, God's hand-picked people, whose birth story includes pillars of smoke and pillars of fire and a parted sea, if their beginning didn't protect them, What claim does America have to ultimate protection? Which is frankly terrifying. And I don't spend a lot of time talking about America specifically because the majority of Christians on the planet don't live here. Our brothers and sisters, the people that we'll spend eternity with, know virtually nothing about American political life and and don't care a thing about the, the debates we like to engage in. And frankly... The gospel's got to be the gospel, whether you preach it in America or whether you preach it in Asia. An American gospel is no gospel at all. 
The gospel is the gospel, and it has to be the gospel wherever you might preach it. And so we, we don't focus in hard on America a lot here. In fact, a Methodist church two summers ago kind of fell into this. They had this conference plan where they were going to deal with the LGBTQ question in the church, especially as it considered leadership. And, and the more liberal camp thought they had won the day. They thought they had, uh, you know, they, they kind of took the, the, the pulse of the nation and what was going on. And they were pretty sure they were going to win this big vote. And what they forgot was that the Methodist church has spent the last hundred years um, evangelizing Africa. And they've done an amazing job of reaching people in Africa. And when the African delegates, you know, showed up to give their vote, they voted just universally conservative. And the funny thing is the, the liberal side hadn't really thought of this as an African question. They forgot to count in how these people might vote because they saw it as an American. They, they viewed the church as an American church with African outreach, but they forgot that the gospel is not an American thing. And so these, these African delegates came in and they voted universally conservative and the conservatives won the day. The gospel is not an American thing. It's a, it's a divine thing. But today, I have to talk about America because we're talking about a national apocalypse. We're talking about the, when Israel as a nation was judged. It's not aimed at a specific person, and, but there's no doubt that people were caught up in this. Individuals were caught up in this. In fact, the entire book of Daniel is about four godly young men who were taken captive. They were caught up in this national apocalypse, and they were taken captive and taken away to a foreign city where, where they had to learn foreign ways, and they were given new names and re-educated and, and had to figure out how to be Jews in Babylon. We know individuals were affected by this national apocalypse. And I think it's a... It's a, it's a reality we're wrestling with in America right now. We don't know how to put language to it, but half of our society is saying we're racist, and, and the other half are doing a genuine heart check and going, I sure don't feel racist. Like, I, I don't feel like I have prejudice against anybody. And, and, the real, and we're, we're squaring off over this issue, and the real question is, where does the nation end and the individual begin? Because the reality is our nation was built on, on some pretty racist issues. And, and some of that has grown into a deep classism that still exists. And, and we have some people going, thinking as an individual, and other people thinking as a nation, and those two things are colliding. What do you, where does the nation end and the individual pick up? And it's a tough question. It's not as easy as it seems. In fact, consider this passage from Matthew that we're all pretty familiar with. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him and He will sit on a throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as shepherds divide His sheep among goats. And He'll set the sheep on His right hand, the goats on His left. And the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. When I was hungry, you gave Me food. When I was thirsty, you gave Me drink. When I was a stranger, you took Me in. When I was naked, you clothed Me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. 
we're pretty familiar with this passage, and we and we we it definitely drives home how important it is to care for the least of those around us. But the part that I think we sometimes overlook is right here in the beginning. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, He'll sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another. So who exactly is being judged here? Is it the nation or the individual? And what exactly is the difference? And if Jesus comes to judge the nations, how is that fair to the individual? Can everybody feel the tension? Is everybody like straining right now under the tension? You're supposed to be. The truth is, a great deal of our scripture that we tend to claim individually, when we read it in its context, it's actually collective. It's actually speaking to a, to a nation. Many of the scriptures that we love so very, very much are referring to the corporate body of God's people. And as Americans who value strong kind of individuality and independence, we can really struggle with this. We don't really know what to do with this. We don't know what to think about the fact that we might be tethered to other people in a way that could even affect our judgment. How we're judged by God. But we're titling this series, Surviving the Apocalypse. So, how do you survive a national apocalypse? If God brings down a nation for its behavior, and the average person has so little control over the way a nation acts, then what, if anything, does the Bible give us for hope? And I'd like to start by saying this. Your allegiances matter. This is kind of a New Testament reality that I don't think we always feel the way the original readers would have felt. I think they would have experienced it differently. But Jesus gets baptized. He spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And as soon as he comes back, the very first time he's back on the scene, after his temptation, Matthew records this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and now we've, this has become just kind of normal Christianese. We talk about the kingdom of God all the time, the kingdom of heaven, and advancing the kingdom. Because we've gotten used to heaven language and the kingdom language in Christianity. We don't, we don't hear it the way Matthew's original readers might have heard it. The original readers heard something more like Jesus began to, to preach and say repent, which means convert. Oh, wow, isn't it already that late? Bear with me. I'm, I'm really close to my first closing. <coughs> they heard repent or convert and join a new kingdom. Join a new nation. Convert because a whole new allegiance is here. Convert because the true kingdom has started. And we tend to make all this very personal. You know, we, we talk about salvation and, and heaven in, in very individualistic terms. Like, am I getting in? Like, that's, am I getting to heaven? And how do I get in? Is, is he going? Is she going? We, we use in and out language. But Jesus' words here are more like, it's here. Join. It's here. Repent. Convert. Be a part of it. Over all other allegiances, be a part of this kingdom. He said, he came preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. We lost some of this when Christianity kind of became the, the, the number one religion of the 
Roman Empire. And then when the Roman Empire fell and the creation of the European nation state, they each kind of picked, this is a Protestant nation and a Catholic nation, and, and they were, they, their faith became part of their, their national identity. And then America started as a, as a desire for religious freedom, but it got caught up in a national revolution. And, and we don't really know where the kingdom of God is anymore. We have this tendency to, to think of it synonymously with nations. But I don't think the original authors of Scripture did. Paul communicated to his people this way, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Christ lives. The Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior. The writer of the Hebrews said it this way, for this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a a home yet to come. Peter picked up on that language from the Exodus we talked about when he talked to his people. He said, but you are not like that. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. You are a holy nation. He's using national language. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Jesus said it maybe the clearest. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And this, may, this stings us a little bit, especially kind of going into an election year, like a really, really important election year, a hotly contested election year. But America is not our kingdom. America's awesome. Don't get me wrong. I love my country. But America's not my permanent abode. I'm a visitor. My citizenship is actually not of this world. My, my people, your people, God's people come from all different nationalities and pay no attention to the lines on the globe. Our allegiance matters. Following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, loving and serving Jesus isn't about saying yes to a list of truth statements so that we can get into heaven when we die. Jesus didn't die a horrible death so that we could have like this great eternal insurance plan. Mostly that we chose because the alternative sounded pretty crappy. From the very first day of his ministry, Jesus started advancing a kingdom, a nation. He's the king who we read about in Deuteronomy who doesn't collect uh, an army and he doesn't collect wives, he doesn't collect money, he's a Bible guy. Jesus is the king of the nation of God. And that nation has citizenship and rights and privileges and responsibilities and rules. But here's the best part. The nation that Jesus invites us into, invites you into, invites me into, is the only nation free of apocalypse. This isn't because the church always gets it right. It's not because the church is full of perfect people, but the kingdom of God was, is free from judgment because it was born out of judgment. Jesus hung on a cross and he bore all the screw-ups of everyone who would ever reside in that nation. He both judged us for our mistakes and freed us from them, paid the price for our failures. He took the place of the oppressed and the oppressor so they could gather at one table together. You want to know how to survive a national apocalypse? You attach your allegiance to a nation that's impervious to apocalypse. 
because it's already been judged and redeemed. So how do we respond to this? <laughs> it's getting real quiet in here. <clears throat> I know this sermon is kind of exactly the opposite of what a mostly conservative pastor is supposed to do right now. You know, I'm supposed to come up and tell you, get out and vote. Try to convince you our very soul of our nation is at stake. And here's the deal. I think you should go out and vote. I really do. I think we've been invited to join the process and it'd be wasteful. We've been given a voice. Be wasteful and not use it. And I absolutely believe America is not impervious to judgment. I, I, I think if Israel didn't get a pass, no way America does. So by all means, vote. It's important. Vote. We need to vote our conscience. Because who, who, how our country acts and, and who it hurts and who it takes care of affects the way God interacts with our country. That's hugely important. That's far more important than voting to make sure you're taken care of. Our vote affects how our country treats vulnerable people and, and, and it's super important that we do that because that's what bears on how God treats our country. So absolutely get out and vote. What America does in this season will absolutely affect America's relationship with God. So vote. It's important. But please, please, please know no matter who is declared president on November 4th or 5th or December 19th or next January or whenever they finally decide who won, no matter who wins, the kingdom is fine. The kingdom is doing great. God's kingdom is not torn by two parties. God's kingdom is not facing two very different futures with a vote at the crossroads. After November 3rd, the church is going to gather and we're going to worship Jesus and we're going to pray for one another and we're going to study the word of God like we have for 2,000 years. Israel was eventually released from captivity and they went back to serving God and it looked different, but God was faithful to them. And from that place, Jesus inaugurated a kingdom in his own blood. That kingdom has grown and remained faithful ever since. It's stayed a kingdom through national collapse, through the rise and fall of empires, through kingdoms imploding. The, the kingdom of God is still going strong. The church has stood strong in wars and revolutions amongst the winners and the looters. In fact, I was, I was reading this day, Russia right now has about 67 million Christians in their country. Almost half. About 47% of Russia now confesses to being Christian. I grew up in the USSR when being a Christian was basically illegal. And the USSR is long gone and the church is still strong in Russia. Growing every year. In the 70s in East and Southeast Asia, there was about 62 million Christians on that entire continent. Now there's closer to 300 million. It's the fastest growing Christian mission field right now. That's about 100 million more Christians than are in America. In Asia, where it's illegal, where they're actively fighting against the kingdom of God, the church is growing amazingly. I know November is huge for our country. And the results of this election are going to affect our lives greatly as Americans. But the truth is, we probably have more in common with those 62 million Russians and those 300 million Asians than we do with fellow Americans who aren't believers. We're going to spend eternity with those people. Our true kingdom is in great hands, and it's strong, and it's healthy, and it's growing, and it's vibrant. So absolutely, we have to vote. We have to get out and do our part. We have to 
We have to share our voice and our, our heart. We're a part of an amazing kingdom. We're a part of a kingdom that is doing great. In America, it's struggling right now, but in other parts of the world, it's exploding. You cannot stop the church. The church is strong and healthy, and God is our king. And so as, no matter what happens, we have, to, we have to have nothing but hope. We have to be full of hope because our allegiance matters, and our true allegiance is to the, the king who cannot be stopped. He cannot be voted out of office. He cannot be, he cannot be minimized. And he is, he is in control. Let's go to the table.